Dr. Gita Pensa is an associate professor with the Brown University Emergency Medicine Residency. She joined Brown's academic faculty in 2014 after 13 years in community emergency medicine practice. In 2015, she launched Brown EM's educational blog, as well as the Brown EM podcast series. She created and serves as host editor of AEM Early Access, a collaborative podcasting project from the Academic Emergency Medicine Journal and the Brown EM Residency. Dr. Pensa is an associate director of Brown's Emergency Medicine Digital Health Innovation Program and co-developed Brown's new Digital Health and Innovation Fellowship Program. We start out discussing her decade-long lawsuit and how this affected her psyche, her practice, and even her marriage. Victor Frankel would be proud as she turned her tumultuous experience into a way to help others through an extremely well-executed, engaging, and educational podcast, Doctors in Litigation, The L Word. It's a narrative-style series about the psychological and practical preparation needed for malpractice litigation. And she speaks nationally on the topic of malpractice litigation. We talk about whether we'd be willing to be friends with a personal injury attorney, and her answer was surprising. However, expert witnesses are a different story. Unfounded lawsuits couldn't happen without them, and they're supposedly one of us. If you're named in a lawsuit, we discuss all the players and how to comport yourself to improve your outcome. Interestingly, theatrics often trump the medicine in this situation. You can find Dr. Petza on Twitter at GitaPensaMD. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Gita Pensa, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. So tell us your origin story. Oh, boy. Well, as you might expect, it started with a lawsuit. And I was originally named... I saw this patient in 2006. I was named soon after in 2007 in a very complex case. And I did not know. I didn't expect to be sued in it. I hadn't known what happened to her after she saw me. And... When I was named, I was working in this little community group and a little community hospital, and I had no idea what to do. No one had ever talked to me as a resident about what to do once you were named. You know, we'd had these risk management lectures about how to avoid being sued as though that were totally possible, but not a single word about what would happen once that finger was pointed right at you, right? Once you had the envelope, what did you do? I had no idea. I didn't even know I was supposed to call my carrier. I I didn't have the first clue and I was panicked. I think one of the consequences of those risk management talks is that when it does happen, it makes you feel like you're really horrible. Right, right, right. Like, because you, we talked to you about this. You, you should be nice to your patients. And if you were nicer to your patients, then that's never would have happened. Exactly. They yeah. make it sound as though risk can be completely managed, which it yes. can. Um, and the implication, since they don't teach you anything about what happens after the fact, is that you shouldn't need it. If you're a good doctor, you won't need it. And there I was. I had thought I was a good doctor. And then all of a sudden, I was not. And I was ashamed and I wanted to isolate myself. And they tell you not to talk to anybody. So I didn't talk to anybody, but boy, was I having a hard time with this. And the case was a big one. Damages were significant. Their initial demand was $28 million. 
I live in a very uh, plaintiff-friendly state, and I was the sole defendant. And you know, panic is, under, is an understatement, I would say. I was really, I was just crushed in so many different ways by this and had no idea what to do. And my attorney, you know, I finally, my chairman is like, You're, now you, you call the insurance company, that's what happens first. And then um, they'll give you an attorney. And my attorney was great. He was very helpful in terms of educating me on the process. But I don't, I don't know if he really understood what it meant to me personally. I mean, he, he's dealt with a lot of physicians over the years. He was very experienced, but not so much of a hand holder. He was an ex-military guy and was very, you know, tough love, <laughs> which is maybe what I needed to get myself in shape for this. But I really... Yeah, but from a mental health perspective, not really what you needed. No. Because you're not allowed to talk. Yeah, right. We, we're not allowed to talk to anyone about it. Right. So I thought that's what they tell that's what they drill into us. That's right. They might need to be named. And then you're gonna drag them into the suit because that's right. So you have no idea how to you have no idea how to proceed with getting help or support or I had I had none of those things. And so to make a it's what is a very long story short. um, And for the longer version for the listeners, check out her podcast. So there will be links to that in the show notes. We've already mentioned it in the intro to the show, but you take a deeper dive on your own podcast. So for more detail into it, and I really highly recommend listening to it in all episodes, but there, there are there is a specific episode where you get into much greater detail about your suit. Yes, thank you. Yes, we talk about the medicine and um, we read some testimony and yeah, so they'll get a, a much deeper sense of what actually happened. But I went to trial in 2011 and that lasted four weeks and it was terrifying. And again, I felt underprepared and testifying for a couple of days. I just really didn't know how it went off. But in the end, I did win. And then I went back to work. And by then, I'd really lost a lot of love for what I was doing, but I just didn't know what else to do with my life. And I still needed to make money because I still had loans. And but boy, I really was not, my heart was not in it anymore. And then shortly after that, I got the notice of the plaintiff's intent to appeal. And I had not really thought of that as a possibility either. And the whole thing started all over again. And in 2015, my verdict was overturned. And I found myself heading back to trial. And I really fairly fell apart. I just, I could not deal with this. And I begged my insurance company to settle. I didn't want to go to trial again. I just felt like At this point, I just lost so much. I just wanted to be done with this whole thing. And I came to this point where I realized that I was was in trouble and that there must be someone who knows more about this than I do and about coping. And there might be other people who could help me and maybe I should stop being a doctor for once and, and think about the fact that maybe I needed some help. And so I started first with the books. There are books about this. There are books about coping with this. There are regular self-help books, which I had never in my life gotten before. And I got them. I read them. I took them seriously. I talked to people who had been through the process. I talked to a psychologist who has taken care of lots of people who have been through litigation or investigation. And I found these things to be so helpful that 
I started making a lot of changes in my life. And in 2014, I joined the faculty at Brown and started learning about blogging and podcasting and educational technology became my new niche. And I started teaching and I started looking for ways to love what I did again and preparing myself. And then finally, in in 2018, I went back to trial for the second time as a totally different person and a totally different defendant. And about a year before that, I knew that I wanted to do something to make the thing that I wish I had when I first started out. And I had these new skills in, in podcasting and sound. And I thought, you know what? This is something that I could make. I could make a podcast series, mini curriculum, whatever you want to call it, that's going to fill that gap. And it's not just going to be my story, but I have these skills now where I can interview people remotely and I will I will find other doctors who want to talk about this. So that's what I did. So about a maybe even a year before I went back to trial, I started, I put out a call on social media and so many people wanted to talk about their emotional experiences when going through litigation. And so I interviewed a lot of them over the next year. And then when I went to trial, I, I made audio diaries about what that was like. And then when it was all said and done in 2018, I, I won again the second time and they declined to appeal. So I was finally done after 12 years and I could start putting together this project. And it's been really rewarding for me. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from people that feel like it's important and helpful. And so if one tiny little good thing can come out of all of those years of suffering, then I'd be glad for that. I think important and helpful is an understatement. I think it's really critical. I think it should be mandatory for all trainees. I also think it should be mandatory for personal injury attorneys to hear (laughs) what the consequences of their actions in their entire industry are. like have the coal industry, you know, sit there and breathe in a smokestack. But that's... That's something else. And it's funny, I don't don't know, you know, having talked to people, it's interesting, having talked to people on both sides of this now, one of the neatest things about this is just all the people that I've gotten to talk to and all of their stories. And I've talked to a couple of physicians who have been plaintiffs, who have felt like they were harmed. And they had to change their thinking about plaintiffs' attorneys. And yeah, you know, we we sort of universally think of them as leeches and bloodsuckers and people who do not care about us as individuals. And, you know, part of that may be true, but they also serve a very important role for people who have truly been harmed. And so... Oh, yeah. And it's the physicians as well, right? You, you look on social media and there are some horrible physicians out there capitalizing yeah. on tragedy and taking mm-hmm. advantage of people's ignorance. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's not the majority of us by any means, but you know, the few, a few bad apples can spoil the bunch. And I guess with personal injury attorneys, it's kind of the same. Yes. There are bad actors on both sides, but where I really like to point my finger That quote sounds so familiar. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Where I I really like to point my finger these days is at expert witnesses. Yes. Because none of these cases can go forward without a physician expert to say that a case has merit and who is willing to, to speak to that. So all of these cases that we feel like are unfair or frivolous or just a bad outcome, but there was no bad medicine, they are fueled by physicians who are making bank, serving as experts and willing to basically sell their licenses to say, yeah, there was malpractice here when there was none. And so so I have started really 
you know, plaintiff's attorneys or plaintiff's attorneys, I've, I've started turning my ire really towards um, the experts who do not operate. And of course, we need, we need fair-minded experts on both sides, but there are a lot of people out there who are completely unregulated, unsupervised, untrained, just raking in the box as serial, I call them testa liars, I didn't coin that phrase. I, I got that first from Louise Andrew, who's a guest on my show. But, um, but these serial testifiers who fuel this system, and that is something I feel like we should be doing. That's something we should be doing something about. So let's let's talk about that then. Uh, what are the fail safes that are in place at the level of the medical boards or OPMC to protect our profession from these bad actors? Right. Very what, little. Very what, little. Okay. <laughs> There's very little. So. Um, some professional societies have codes of ethics for emergency or so for emergency emergency medicine has one that's why it's on my brain but um but codes of ethics for expert witnesses and people can a lot of times ignore them without much you know without much fear or consequence the real consequence to them comes if a physician decides to file an ethics complaint with their board after with their board or their professional society after the fact. And after the fact. I think that's an important has, distinction, right? You mentioned that on your show because if it's not after the fact, what can happen if if you if you file a complaint while the case is still going? Oh, and this is so critical. If you file a complaint against some expert witness, or you take matters into your own hands, which some people have done. We have seen this happen where a physician was so incensed by, and rightly so, but so incensed by what an expert was testifying to that they sent that testimony after the, after the deposition, sent that testimony to people in their department as a way of saying, look what your fellow physician is doing, shouldn't you be doing something about this? But since it was during the pendency of the trial, the, trial, the case was still ongoing, that is considered witness tampering. And that can be a criminal charge and will also really lose your case for you. In this particular case that I'm talking about, it's had a really tragic ending. The judge decided not to pursue criminal charges in him, but very strongly censure him. And to say that now his case, you know, the uh, they took away the confidential communications with his attorney. They basically said, you know, this case is, is over. And two days after, um, I think they reached some sort of settlement. And two days after that, that physician died by suicide and left a note um, about how he felt so wronged by the system and the fact that these expert witnesses are are really never called to to task about what they do. And so I think experts often think of this as like a victimless crime. They can just make a lot of money, but this is not a victimless crime. And, the, and I'm sure that that test a liar found a way to still sleep at night. Knowing oh, yeah. what he had done. They, they yes. you know, you can rationalize anything. You can rationalize anything and they cash their check, yeah. you know? So, so you have to wait until everything is over and that can be years and years and years and years. And a lot of physicians get to the point where when it's done, they just want it to be done. They don't want to do anything about it. And so a lot of these experts really just 
just kind of go go on doing their doing their thing without anyone really intervening in any way. There are just lots of protections built into the judicial system, protections for experts because they, you know, you can't sue them, you can't um, malign them in any way during the trial, you can't interfere in any way, and the legal system depends on them. So the they build these protections in, but you know, it's it's really tough to be on the receiving end of unfair or exaggerated testimony. And I hear from physicians over and over and over again that this is possibly the worst part of the whole thing is just feeling this immense sense of betrayal by other physicians and not be able to do anything about it. So you can you can go after their medical society, or you can go after them through their medical society, through their code of ethics, or maybe yes. through their place of employment by in- informing their employer or their partners yes. about their testimony afterwards. That is dicey. People do do that. I'm not going to say that there is, we've been one of the podcasts, we follow the story of somebody who does that, who is just so incensed. And he's, <laughs> I adore this guy. He's kind of a vigilante in, in his own way. I just, I do admire him, but I can't really advocate for what he did because there are some risks involved in doing that. But what he did was make copies of this physician's deposition testimony and her uh, video deposition and all of this testimony. And once it was done, he sent hundreds of copies out to everyone she worked with, the state medical societies, the uh, American College of Emergency Physicians, and they did wind up uh, censuring her. And she was someone who was doing like 50 cases at a time. I can't imagine how much money this woman... And she's actually like the chair of a department somewhere. She's not a, you know, some fly-by-night person, but has this reputation of just, you know, being a gun for hire. And so the American College did, of emergency physicians did censure her. And because somebody else brought an ethics complaint against her and was successful in that, the college's policy on that was that with a second censure, you're suspended from the professional organization and that gets you reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. And so once an expert's reported to the data bank, then you might be able to start really making a dent in their income or their behavior in some way because that is something that defense attorneys will find and be able to use in court to disempower that expert. Mm. So so there so it, it relies on us all doing our part to stick with it and call them out after the fact. But, you know, a lot of people are afraid of being sued for a libel or there's this tortious, tortious interference with contracts or something like that. You know, you can sue for anything. Yeah. So if you have an attorney that then wants to sue you for one of those things, they may not win. But again, now you're embroiled in litigation again. So the safest thing to do really is to go through your professional societies. But I certainly understand the urge. I certainly understand the urge to do other things and and silently on, you know, on the sides being, you know, hearing about these stories being like, yes, you go. But I, but you can't also... It's still kind of vigilante justice. <laughs> it's still vigilante But it's still justice. using the levers of the legal system and of your of your specialty society, it's, it's really not vigilante because that's operating outside the law. You're just kind of working right. within the confines of the system. And that, right. that's interesting for me because I'm I'm an ENT in the biggest ENT practice in the country. We have 220 physicians. And so um, a lot of times when we make decisions, it's to protect the practice as a whole. Um, some some of the partners and some of the physicians might disagree with the decisions, but sometimes it's, you know, a lot of times it's to protect the practice. So it's 
it would be interesting to see if a practice like mine or other similar practices that employ lots of same specialty physicians that have, you know, these institutions in place for legal counsel and lawsuits, having a policy in place that then it's, it's a way of kind of policing the whole system and then protecting the practice from frivolous lawsuits. And it'd be interesting to see if like CityMD, which is this, you know, giant emergency medicine practice in, in the New York metro area, you know, a practice like that could, could have a policy where they assess all of the lawsuits and then they go over the, the, um, the testimony and see if there is something that, that warrants some type of, let's call it retribution. Because ultimately, that's what it is. So, you know, I, I, this is where I feel like physicians have some power. We can't very easily enact legislation that's more protective. We can't change the way malpractice trials happen. We can't suddenly make everyone have to go through a real panel to see if cases have merit. Like, we don't have a lot of control over that. We can lobby for this. We can make sure our own physicians are not these people. Yes, that is what we can do. And that takes a little bit of guts because, you know, a lot of the professional societies are really, let's say this, they are interested in helping their members, but they're also interested in their own bottom line and staying profitable and they're in their kind of businesses in their own right. Any organization, any professional society, they're going to, we're bad at, at policing ourselves. Yes. We're, we're no different. The so finance industry can't do on. it. The you know we we can't do it we any, we're, we're, we're not good at policing ourselves we're just no. not we're we're, we're tribal we're trying to protect and we're we're, try, we're trying to protect our own you're one yes. of us you're one of us I know I know but we have to get we have to get past that because yeah. as we're finding unregulated industries <laughs> have a tendency to take advantage of certain situations right yes. and we there are so many ripple effects from inaccurate expert witness testimony right? Where we fear litigation because we know that you could be a good doctor and do everything right and have a bad outcome and you're going to get sued. And it shouldn't be that way, right? It should be that someone can look at this testimony and be like, no, like you know, everything the doctor did was, was reasonable and certainly above the legal definition of standard of care, which is, by the way, minimum competence, right? It doesn't mean your care was perfect. It's minimum competence. And a lot of experts do not testify as a standard of care like that. But if there were some way that a professional society could say, if you are an expert witness, if you're working as an expert witness, your membership in this society is provisional upon your declaring that and also allowing us to review X amount of your testimony per year, And you could have physicians who volunteer for that position or you could make it, um, one of my guests on the podcast suggested that it be like jury duty where just as part of your membership, you have to review X number of things per year. I think just people knowing someone is looking over their shoulder, the tiniest, teensiest bit would change behavior. It's all, it's really all it would take. And there, there would still be outliers. There would still be some exaggeration, but just knowing that someone is watching you or might even be watching you a little bit would, I think, change the way some of these people testify. It's right now, it's just the wild west. Nobody, nobody looks at anything. I read something that said, if you put a picture of eyeballs in your refrigerator, it will get you to change your food choices. 
because it just looks like it tricks your mind into thinking that someone's watching you. So I totally agree. I totally agree. If if uh, if, that is if you know if you know there's a chance that somebody's watching you, then you're you're gonna it's gonna change your behavior. We're human beings. This is what this is just how we behave. So you know, capitalize on on that. I'm going to try I think that. it's a great idea. You're going to try the fridge, the fridge trick. <laughs> or a mirror. I said I heard that too, like a, a little a little mirror. So you can even just look oh. at yourself doing it. So, so let's let's talk about the you, you mentioned something. You said even if you practice perfect medicine, so the standard of care is like a minimal amount of you know good practice of medicine, but 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 you're saying even if you practice textbook medicine and someone gets hurt, you can still get sued. Of course. And you, of course, but it's not, of course, we're, this is not what we're taught, right? This no. is, this is why I said your, your practice should be mandatory listening for everybody because this is not what we're taught. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're taught is if you practice good medicine and you're nice to your patients then you're not going to get sued. Not that if you're nice to your patients and practice perfect medicine and you have a bad outcome, but despite this, because there's so much money to be made, you can still be sued. Yes. So let's talk about the business of malpractice. Who are the who are the players? So you already mentioned the the, the plaintiffs, expert witnesses. Mm-hmm. So then you have your your plaintiffs' attorneys, your mm-hmm. personal injury attorneys. Yes, yes. So how do they view this situation? How do they sleep at night? Oh gosh, that's a great question. Um, and it's interesting. What I have not done on this podcast is interview. I've thought about doing it a lot. I don't think I'm like mentally ready to do it yet. But I well, you'd be about- against a litigator, right? Like you're litigating a litigator. That yeah. that sounds like, as <laughs> as as expert as you are in this. You're still you're an emergency medicine physician, and they I, are. Yeah, this is what they do. I have some trepidation about yeah. that. So I yeah, I would love to get inside inside their minds, and I you know I think to them. What I hear over and over again is that it's just business. It's just business. And uh, it's big business. It's big business. You know, they're taking whatever the, and and the plaintiff, I got to say, another reason why I really don't like these expert witness testa liars is that a lot of times the plaintiff is not really, well, how do I say this? Plaintiffs aren't doing this usually because they're greedy. Plaintiffs are doing this usually because they're hurt or someone they love, they feel has been hurt or had some sort of a bad outcome. They don't understand what happened. They can't get answers because the hospital shuts everything down or the practice shuts everything down and you're not allowed to communicate with them. And they feel like the only way to get justice is to go through this system. And then there is an expert somewhere who says, yeah, this case has merit. This doctor screwed up and you're entitled to lots and lots of money, even if that's not the case, right? So they're giving these plaintiffs this, you know, false feeling that something else could have been done to save their loved one, the suffering, which is a horrible thing. They should not be doing that, right? So the plaintiffs, yeah, they, they're in it for justice. They're in it for information. And yes, they may feel that they need money to help care for someone or, you know, now their spouse has died or whatever, and and they they need some help. That's that's where they're coming from. And the plaintiff's attorney, the plaintiff's attorney, they take home the, you know, a very large percentage of whatever is won. A lot of this whole system of like, you don't, you know, you don't pay us anything until we win. Well, when you win a settlement or a verdict, they're taking a ginormous percentage of that. So this is huge business for plaintiff's attorneys. It is huge business for many of these experts. It is less of a business for defense attorneys. They certainly make 
a fine living and for the insurance companies and the insurance companies have to look at all of these decisions as business decisions, right? They are, they're a business. And so these, the episode that I'm working on right now, which probably should come out later this week is about trial and settlement. And when they are deciding, is this a case that should be settled? Is this a case that we fight? These are economics decisions. They are not, they're personal to the physician and they're personal to the plaintiff. Everybody else is thinking about dollars and cents. And these are business decisions. And a lot of times the doctor does not have any control over whether a case gets settled or it goes to court. Or if they do, this is something we can get into in this particular episode, if they do have a consent to settle clause, um, which I can go into later if you want, but if they have a consent to settle clause, it usually comes with something called a hammer clause, which means that you can force or refuse all of a settlement and push a case to trial but if you lose and you lose big and it's in excess of your policy limits or a settlement that was offered before, you are going to be on the hook for that money. So do you really want to be the person making that choice? I don't know. I did not. No. Yeah, no, that sounds like a terrible position to be in because <laughs> they've already made this calculation and they do this for a living. Yes, they so have. So as well as you know the case, you do not know the business. You do right. not know the, how the right. other and cases the case have gone. This is not decided on the medicine. This is the thing that we keep getting into is that this is not about medicine. This is about optics, it's about theater, and it's about how a jury of non-medical people and a non-medical judge would look at the presentation and decide. And a lot of times those are based on emotion. If it's a complex medical case and it's, ex- it's hard to explain the decision-making, it gets pretty dicey because the jury cannot follow what is going on. It becomes this battle of the experts and each of the experts is testifying in this slanted way. They are trained to persuade a jury one way or another instead of just giving a dispassionate accounting of the facts. And the jury just basically has to pick who do they like better. It comes down to do they like the doctor? How sorry do they feel for the plaintiff? Which experts do they trust the most? That's what it comes down to. So they're going to do an accounting of all of these things, look at how the doctor did at deposition, what did they look like, Are they going to look good on the stand? Are they arrogant? Are they defensive? All of these things that go into whether a jury would like them. They're going to look at what the experts say about the case. They're going to look about at at whether this plaintiff is a very sympathetic plaintiff. If they bring that plaintiff out and put them on the stand, if they have, if you have a, a chronically ill child now, a neurologically devastated adult, if you have a spouse of a deceased plaintiff who is suffering, the optics of all of these things matter. And so it's, it's, it's incredible that these things are, are really what go into deciding the justice in a case like this, but that is the reality. And there's only one part of those optics that you can control, and that is your behavior at deposition and your behavior at trial. Right? Exactly. You can't control anything else. Correct. So what did you learn from your case about the importance of that part of the theater? Well, so in the sixth episode, we talk about deposition. And I, when I started this whole process, was the worst. When I say the worst, I mean, my very experienced attorney said that I was the worst. (laughs) And that's why I want you to talk about it, because (laughs) I, I think that would be all of us. Right? Why? Because nobody knows the medicine better than we do. Right? right. Nobody right. understands this better than we do. The, you know, the person who's supposedly the the plaintiff uh, 
plaintiff's expert, they might not even be in the same specialty as you. So there's no way they know this stuff as well as you do, right? Absolutely. So and you're angry. You're angry yeah. or, well, you know, okay, you may not you may not be angry. So there, you know, there's a couple of sizes. We're talking a lot about people who feel like they did everything right. Yeah. And there are also physicians who feel like I made a mistake or yeah. um, I, you know, I could have done something differently. I wish I'd made a different choice. Medicine is... And we get into this in the podcast. Too. Medicine, yeah. You're just operating in the gray zone, but people expect perfection and good outcomes every time. And that is not possible. Right. And the plaintiff's attorney knows that and they are going to capitalize on it. Absolutely. So if you have any second guessing of yourself, which is human, right? You have a bad outcome. You're going to go over it in your head countless times. And this is something that I think patients don't appreciate about our lives mm-hmm. is that if you do have a bad, we're thinking about them constantly. We're at home with our kids. It's distracting. We're out to dinner with friends. It's distracting. We're thinking about, we're thinking about our patients. We're thinking and so if you have a negative outcome, you're gonna, you're, it's going to be human to second guess it. They're going to know it and they're going to sink their teeth into that and capitalize on that very, very human impulse. Yes. A lot of what happens is, and we, <laughs> I keep referring back to the podcast. We talk about this in the podcast. A lot of it is, is very deliberate emotional manipulation on their part because they understand the psychology of physicians and they will capitalize on those things as weaknesses. And so I tell people, to what you have to reframe the way you think about this whole thing and you have to think about it as business and strategy optics and recognize that everything that they are making you to feel is deliberate and i liken it to a borderline patient right you you have a borderline patient and they are pushing your buttons and you are getting really aggravated until you realize wait a second, this patient is borderline. And all of a sudden, you're able then to to treat them professionally instead of react emotionally to the things that they're doing to you. That recognition of like, oh, this is what's supposed to happen. This is what a borderline person does. And I don't have to let it bother me. That's what you have to apply to, to this scenario. They are going to manipulate you. So whatever your emotion is, getting back to the how do you how do you look how do you prepare yourself for this whatever your emotional state coming in know that they're going to leverage it in some way and you have to get to this point of equanimity where you can say like okay i have whatever feelings i have about this but i have a task now and that is to look a certain way act a certain way and be able to answer questions in a certain way my job is to know the chart my job is to be able to defend my actions explain my thought process in a reasonable way to explain what exactly happened. And I'm going to go perform. But that is not how I came into it. So to get back into that, I was, uh, I was a mess, to put it bluntly. <laughs> I was in, a mess. What, in what regard? How were you, how were so, you a mess? Because I don't think any of us would think of that as being a mess. I was emotionally consumed. Okay, so maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit. I was. I was emotionally consumed by this. I was crying a lot. You know, I didn't want to go to work. I'd cry in my car on the way to work. I would just force myself to to go to work. I hated it, Uh, but I couldn't think of what else to do. Uh, at home, I was I was impatient with my spouse. I talk over. I talk about the carryover effect into families in the most recent podcast, um, there's a huge carryover effect. This is something that makes you depressed and anxious and angry and it lasts for years. 
And it really kind of seeps into everything. And it was doing that with me. I was, at first, I was really upset over what happened to the plaintiff. And I couldn't get over the feeling. This was funny. I said this to my husband. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever hated me before, but I feel like this, there is a person in the world who hates me, who hates me. This person thinks that I ruined her life and that I had the capacity to fix something that I did not. And she thinks that I was so incompetent and so negligent that I caused this terrible thing to happen to her and I couldn't live with it. I just, I lost so much sleep over just the thought of the plane of hating me. I just, these are all the things that just sort of got compounded. I worried about whether or not I was a good doctor. I, you know, I de- you dedicate your life to this. You spend your 20s or 30s, whatever, doing residency and missing anniversaries, anniversaries and birthdays and your kids' first steps and all the things that we sacrifice. And it's not enough, right? You, you can't get over some of these feelings. And so when I walked into my attorney's office, I was all over the map emotionally. But mostly by that point, I had realized that, you know what? This is not fair. Uh, there is nothing else I could have done in this situation. There is, unless I had a crystal ball, I would not have changed a single thing that I did. And then I was mad. I was mad. I wanted them to make the case go away. I didn't understand that they couldn't just make the case go away. I was defensive. I probably was arrogant. And I resented everybody. And all of that came out. I was, I think I summed it up at first. I was a giant mess. <laughs> I was a mess. <laughs> and I didn't know the first thing about how to testify at a deposition. I didn't know the first thing about what to expect or, you know, what the lawyer's job was, what my job was. No idea about any of it. And so I, it was a real uphill battle for them to get me into fighting shape. And I eventually got there. I had to learn to manage my emotions. I had to learn a lot about reframing it. And, you know, even through the first trial, I think I still wasn't great, but I was at least listening to them and doing what they said. My deposition was fine. You know, I had a lot of, I don't know if it was an inordinate amount of prep time for me or not, but I finally got the message about how I was supposed to behave. Uh, And I pulled it off. I think that I would be far better now if I had to do it again, but I, I pulled it off. I was careful and, and they just spent, they spent a lot of time with me. And if they hadn't, I think it would have been a giant disaster and this case could have gone a very different way. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.